I seen all phases of Chris Carter. I seen the young guy came in reckless, um, didn't work hard, uh, relied on all of his athleticism when he was in Philly, being released, buddy finding him a home in Minnesota, and him turning his life around. And that dude, you're talking about talking, there's no one who out-talked Chris Carter. Chris, we were in a game, in the middle of a game, and he's in the slot, and he's talking, EA, I know you guys don't have this dude on me. I know, And it was one of our players. And I was like, he was like, hey, I know. In film, you're the worst guy in the backfield. And, and as Warren Moon is, like, checking, he is talking to this player. And this, the, after the series, he's like, dude, the, series, the player came to me and said, am I that bad? I was like, man, don't listen to Chris Carter. <laughs> Do not listen to Chris. He's trying to get in your head. This is the Give Me a Sense podcast. Here's Mike Yale. End of message. Well, if you've been listening to the Give Me a Sense podcast, can't thank you guys enough for a lot of the support every single week, really over the course of this last month. The, the downloads and the feedback have really picked up. I know the Kevin Connors edition uh, was really cool. Jake Plummer a couple weeks ago. That was a fantastic uh, episode, not to mention Beto Duran, who just finished up. But if you're a football fan, you know we've had a lot of these football guests. Just made reference to Jake Plummer. Ronnie Lott has been on the show. Matt Leinert has been on the show. And I, I want to throw out another guy who I've had the the pleasure of knowing for years. We spent some time together at ESPN, and then there was a heavy recruitment phase to try to get him out to the West Coast, which really isn't all that hard, because he was the first guy that told me San Diego was a perfect place to live. But there's no one better uh, when it comes to talking about defense than Eric Allen. He was a second-round pick in 1988. He's a six-time Pro Bowler, although every time I introduce him <laughs> on the Pac-12 network, EA says, make sure you throw in that Rose Bowl situation as well. So a guy who's also won a Rose Bowl, but he spent, uh, I, my math, 14 years in the yeah, NFL. 14. 14 years in the NFL. Seven with the Eagles, three with the Saints, and then he finished out his career with the Oakland Raiders for four seasons. EA, it is great to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be here, you know, and uh, when you bring, when you when you talk about all those uh, those years, uh, I, I'm not sure if everyone understands, it's so difficult to play all those years on the corner. And the one thing I like to tell my inside buddies is there was no backup. There was a starting every single year you penciled in 21 on the corner, whatever team I was on. So I take very a lot of pride in, in knowing that when you come into the ballpark, 21 is going to be playing. Well, I, I want to throw this your way, and we'll talk about the Hall of Fame uh, towards the end of the show. But I, I think it's it's shocking that you're not in the Hall of Fame considering some of the things that you've been able to accomplish in your career. The 54 interceptions is is mind-boggling in a lot of ways. And Curtis Conway, who's actually one of our colleagues yeah. at Pac-12 Network, I remember you came in for your audition, and I said to Seaway, I was like, hey, EA is coming in. And he goes, EA in the Hall of Fame? And I said, I don't I don't know. Not. And he goes, dude, that is shocking to me. <laughs> so we're talking about one of the uh, fantastic wide receiver in his own right, and Curtis Conway, who certainly knows from the wide receiver spot, people don't want to match up against a guy like you, but it's funny because I just brought up Seaway. You know, that's probably a good place to start. We are in our Adidas touchdown room on Saturdays. We're watching a lot of football, and I can see you still have this passion and this love for the game. You'll jump up from your seat. You'll mimic guys in our touchdown room, but Seaway sitting next to me the other day, and he said he starts talking about game film and what it was like for him at the NFL level to watch tape and what he was trying to do, and then you jumped in on the conversation, yeah. and I'm I. this is like part of the reason why I started this podcast, to hear those 
types of things and bring those stories to people who don't get the, you know, don't have the job that I have where I get to hang out with you guys and hear right. these stories. But people understand film, watching, that you guys do at the next level. Put into context, though, what's really happening there. Yeah, well, what's really interesting is when you hear that, hey, you know, I'm breaking down film and watching film. And I think most people may think, and even people that are in the league, they're just watching the game. You know, a lot of guys that we all know their, their names, they're just kind of watching the game. And they get excited when a guy scores a touchdown or when you, got, when you get an interception or a sack. But the detail guys, the guys who continue to play at a very high level consistently, year in, year out, no matter how much their physical abilities start to drop, uh, Rod Woodson, Charles Woodson, um, you know, Ed Reed, these kind of guys, Aeneas Williams, these kind of guys, what we do is we start to break down actual um, opportunities to get plays based on what a receiver is doing specifically on a certain route. So it may take me, it usually took me Tuesday, Wednesday for me to get a great understanding of what the offense what the player, the coordinator, is trying to accomplish on a set of plays that's going to directly affect me. Let's take the out route, for instance. Sure. And we're talking out route, Dallas Cowboys, back in the, the heydays of, of Aikman and Irvin and, and Emmitt Smith. So they had some specific plays that were almost unstoppable. So whenever you get a situation like that where you see a play that's going to be successful over and over again, it's almost a rhythm situation. Almost, It's almost a timing for the quarterback and the receiver. So what I start doing is I start counting Michael Irvin's steps on just his inside leg. So he took four or five steps before he started to break out. So I'm like, wow, I need to watch that film so many times that I get the steps in my head. So as I'm in the game, I go back to that film preparation and I get the down and distance. Okay, check mark. All right, it's 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 first and ten. They like to run this. I get the formation. Oh yeah, formation. Backs are offset so the quarterback doesn't hit the back in the back of the helmet when he throws this pass. On Troy's third step, he's letting the ball go. So instead of trying to react to all that, and you're always going to be a step or two late if you react, right? You know, so like every other corner before me, they're always almost there, right? And so that's enough to keep them going. So I start counting those steps, and I would what we'll call I would open early, and so that's giving a key to the receiver that he has got me to think that he's going deep, and off my back foot, I break downhill and picked the ball off and went for six. We're playing them in Philly. It was late in the game, and I kind of set it all up. I read that inside foot off that third step. He broke out. I was breaking downhill, picked it off, went to the house. So, again, that preparation always goes back to being able to put all that in the mind, all that in the computer, and on game day feel very confident about your film preparation so much that you're willing to take a – educated guess and go for it so you got to kind of set guys up but it just if, if you have that kind of preparation and film study it's going to make your career long a lot last long uh, last a lot longer and you're going to be successful how many how many hours are you studying the film yeah that's a great question and for me depending on the opponent um, so say the west coast offense was really popular at, at the time the 49ers were running it uh, there are several teams that are running it. Uh, so I would basically spend about 
two hours a day outside of the facility, meaning at home. So I'm taking film wow. from the facility home. On VHS? On <laughs> you know, I... I've, yes, it started off in VHS, which is so funny. Isn't it crazy? Like 89, 90, 91, I, it was VHS. It's a, it's a running joke now <laughs> on this show because Plummer comes on and starts talking about being recruited at ASU, and he's like, oh, my high school coach is sending out VHS tapes yeah, to, to coaches around yeah. the country. So I started laughing. I said, hey, I don't know how many of our listeners even That's understand hilarious. what VHS is. And then Kevin Connors, one of our close friends, came right. on the show a couple weeks ago and said he sent out three to 400 VHS tapes oh, trying to get a job. Is- Crazy. And I we, like that's what the deal is. Yeah. Like people, so you're taking VHS, VHS home, and you're watching, plopping them in my VCR, VHS, my VCR. <laughs> you were you gonna go stop the VHS me. machine? Yeah. You forgot what they're called. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and I'm and I'm stopping and going back, stopping and going back, and then years later, I was able to get the CDs, which made it so much easier to be able to copy those things off. And and so yeah, two hours outside. Now in the building, I'm pretty sure everybody understands that you're in at 8 o'clock in the morning, sure. okay, and the practice is only an hour and a half. So you're in in the morning, you do your little weight training, you get inside, you have your individual meetings where you're in with all the DBs and DB coach, you're starting to get the game plan together. So first and second down, you're talking about, hey, this guy's that, this guy's this. But but you have a lot of friends that you played with, I'm yeah. sure. I'm curious because you, you played at an elite level. How many guys were doing what you were doing? Taking the VHS Take tapes the, home. Yeah, on, on my team in particular, we had a really good this veteran team. This is with team. the Eagles. Yeah, this is with the Eagles. Okay. Really good veteran team. So that was probably the middle linebacker, Seth Joyner, um, our great safety who's dearly departed, Andre Waters. Yeah, yeah. He's the first one to kind of, you know, clue me in on, hey, here's how you study, bro. Here's how you get ahead. You know, I'm 5'10". I'm playing strong safety, and, you know, I need to get an advantage to get a jump. So I had great mentors back there. But each team probably had, at the skill position-wise, probably had just one or maybe two guys who were able to to do that. And one thing that I would like to mention is yeah. people – and back in my it – was, it was me, Prime, Dion, uh, um, Rod Woodson. Yeah. He was probably a better safety than corner. Okay. And Aeneas Williams. I mean, we would get together and talk shop about different receivers who gave us problems. And we all were wow. great students of the game. And I don't think Dion gets enough credit of being a student because he's going to talk all day long about sure. how fast he was yeah. and, and all that. But he did a lot of study and preparation to aid him. So what's your relationship like with Dion then? We're good. We're, I mean, whenever we see each other, you know, we always but a- how embrace does that, each other. But how does that bond form with guy? I mean, he's a contemporary, right? Yeah, he's yeah, not yeah. necessarily a teammate. So, like, how is that meeting at a Pro Bowl? I mean, you played in six of them. And, and that's kind of what, how it happens. You get at the Pro Bowl and you see the guy's work ethic. You see how he performs in practice. And remember. Do you get cell we There's were, no cell phones then, right? So you no, like, no, no. Like, we're just like, hey, you know. Keep in touch. Not email. <laughs> not cell phone. Here's my house number. Like. <laughs> So it, it, it's an interesting thing because some of us, and we would get at the Pro Bowl, and, you know, we're all super competitive, oh, right? So we're calling it, yeah. each other out. We're talking trash to each other, basically. It, it, hey, E, can you get a pick? Bam, I'll get a pick, and I'll toss it to him. Like, there you go. What, what, what's up? You know, can you get one? So it's just great banter yeah. back and forth. And then off the field, like a guy like Aeneas Williams, sure. hey, E, how do you prepare for this guy? I mean, when Buddy wants, like, an all-out blitz and everybody knows you're blitzing, what do you do to kind of 
help yourself out so you're just not standing there. So it's a great working relationship with those top guys and you nurture those those relationships. And uh, again, every time I see Dion, you know, we my family and my friends yeah. always say, hey, the best DB in the house is here. It's, it's me, you know. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, we give exactly. each other the business. Do you sure. do you? So there's there's so many great relationships that are formed based off of like those Pro Bowl experiences. Are those maybe the most memorable ones just because of the collection of guys Guys. where it's not – it's a competitive environment, but it's not an actual game. It's not a playoff game. It's not a regular season game where you guys maybe can cut loose just a little bit? Yeah. Those are great times. Yeah. But really the the times that we as as retired guys think of more are the opportunities when we have a chance to get with the guys that we first came into the league with. So those – First four or five years with the Eagles, yeah. those guys. That's your crew. Those are my guys. So how for you, because I was looking at the numbers, and, and like I said before, we, we spent many a day at ESPN together on the set, and I'm thrilled that you're, you're one of my teammates now at Pac-12 Network. But I'm looking up some of the numbers here, and there's not – you know, Jake Plummer talked about this a couple weeks ago on on this show. He talked about the transition, you know, yeah. playing quarterback and going from ASU, where you obviously played as well, right. to the NFL level. And he said, hey, you know, there's a learning curve there. But yet I'm looking at some of your numbers. I didn't realize this. Eight picks, five picks. I mean, you're you're in those yeah. first two years, it doesn't seem like Eric Allen has this huge <laughs> transition. So was it was there a big learning curve for you? Oh, you could say physically, no. not okay. really. It, right. it really wasn't physically because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm five, ten and a half. So I've always been in this body. But the one thing about me is I always As a guy played, that's five, eight, I know exactly what you feel like. But yet your your body's a little bit different than mine. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, because I, I have unusually long arms. Yeah. And... I can jump like really, really high. Yeah. I mean, that's, and you still play ball. Yeah, I still, I still hoop. You know, yeah. catch me at the YMCA yeah. off Mission Valley. What I do know, yeah. the, you're not going hot yoga anymore. You no, learned your no, lesson no, about no. that. A whole, whole different story. <laughs> so the transition for me, because I could basically run with anybody, and the tall matchup thing was never really in my mind. So the 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 adjustment for me was just the amount of plays that you were going to be on an island with these guys that you used to watch on TV. I played against Steve Largent, dude. I played against um, so many guys that I saw on television. Art Monk. I played against Art Monk. How weird is that, though? That was the the adjustment. Like, dude, I like... And I'm supposed to keep that guy in check. Right! like he's a baller. He this dude and is. And they're like, expecting me to be a baller. Yeah, now. to cover this guy and shut him down. And the the first time I really got that, we played in Minnesota, and we played against Anthony Carter, who was the star at Michigan, wore number one. It was it's like the reason why people wear number one at Michigan. Yeah. I had to like cover him, and it was like Buddy Ryan was no joke, right? Buddy Ryan was like, I'm gonna put you on Carter, and I expect him not to have any catches. And I'm like, buddy, I'm like 20, I just turned 21 years old. Okay, I, are you going to take me out for a trick after yeah, the game? Right, <laughs> because it's legal now. Yeah, I'm like, what are you talking about? So that was the adjustment, yeah. the expectation of being excellent on a team with Reggie White, yeah. with Jerome Brown, with Clyde Simmons, with Seth Joyner, with uh, Wes Hopkins, with Andre Waters. I was the piece that he thought, 
he was missing in Chicago with that great 85 team. He always said, front seven-wise, I'm close to being the same. Safety-wise, I'm close to being the same. But he didn't believe he had the corners to be able to really execute the 46 defense. Do you do you have that conversation before you get to Philly? Because I think the combine has really dramatically changed yeah, it over has, the years. It has. So like, it, are those the types of conversations that are no, before no, you head there? No, I had okay. no idea that you I were going to be relied on. I knew on like he this. liked me. We had a, he had a coach on the staff who used to be at Arizona State named Ronnie Jones. Sure. And they, you know, they were calling me, hey, he really likes you. And, you know, I'm like, okay, whatever. But you're getting that from everyone, right? Yeah, you're getting that from, you know, they're flying me to Atlanta. They're flying me to Chicago and flying me all over the place. And so you have those conversations about, hey, he likes you, but you're not detailed in the fact that you're going to be counting on to do this. How cool is that, though, when you're in college? Right? Oh, yeah. Because Matt Liner was one, I think he was the second guest that I had on this show. And I was like, dude, you're the quarterback at USC yeah. and not only just the quarterback you're he's literally one of the all-time great college right, quarterbacks yeah. that's ever played the game For sure and at a school like that now ASU is different from USC but it ain't that much different right. from and, the social standpoint and let me tell you something and it is better as far as position I play we have Mike Haynes Mike Haynes might be the best cornerback to ever play in the game I mean he is just so I'm following that yeah I'm following Mike Richardson who was a like three-time All-American David Fulcher, one of my favorite guys, DB, just a phenomenal player. So there were like five or six DBs at ASU who you had like, wow, I'm the next in line. So you had that, and then you're getting drafted from you know, to this team that all it's about is defense, and you're flying around, and people are excited to have you, and they're talking about you being you know one of the top DBs. So it is exciting, but again – when you go back to your two-room apartment in Mesa, Arizona, <laughs> and you know you just th- you're thinking about man, I was just in high school like three, yeah. four years ago, and you're like these people are expecting me to be on this level, and you you really have to kind of gather yourself and have a really strong upbringing to be able to deal with all that. You, do you doubt yourself at that point? Are there any doubts that creep in? Because we've had broadcasters on the show, yeah. and I think, and even some of the athletes, they'll say, "Hey, you know, like when the expectation is that high." I mean, I guess as a as an athlete at your level, you you have to have that confidence. But I'm just yeah. curious, like, doesn't everyone sort of have those moments where you say, "Oh boy, yeah. I don't." Can if I you do talk this? to my good friends, like from high school, who I still have, they will tell you, you know, I told them I was going to play when I was like 12 years old. Wow. I told them I was going to play in the National Football League. I was going to wear 21 and play like receiver like Cliff Branch, who was my favorite player. But as you go along, and especially when I was in college, I never thought about Sunday. I never thought about Sunday. I, it, it was always because I was at my dream. Because I, I was at my dream school. I, I I'm now actually almost be, I'm believing you because Jake Plummer said it and I didn't believe him. So yeah. now I, I guess I there never is something thought to it. it was like. I was at my dream school. I was at ASU. I wanted to go to ASU since I was really little because yeah. my dad was an associate professor at U of A, and he taught military history. He was a Marine. So hold on, and, U of A. <laughs> yeah, because my grandparents lived in Tucson. Okay. So on Thanksgiving, I would always go down and visit my grandparents and my dad in yeah. Tucson. That was always around the time of the ASU U of A game. Okay. ASU would always dominate. They had those great teams. Sure. You know, Mike Haynes, Al Harris, so Pago. That's okay. 
And I was like, Dad, I'll never go to U of A. So you're I'm a front runner. ASU, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I get there and I'm like, dude, I'm with, I'm at ASU. Yeah. That's all I want. They're the same colors as my high school team. I'm like, I'm here. Never thought about Sunday. So when that time came, I was able to really concentrate on, man, if I get this shot, how am I going to, how am I going to be successful? And uh, Willie Shaw had a lot to do with it. Oh, yeah. uh, who was my DB coach at Arizona State and went on to the pros. Said, you can play in this level. David Fulcher, who had left a year before, he came back during the strike along with other players from ASU. Dude, you guys can play at this level. You guys can play at this level. It's, it's no different. It's just mentally. So they kind of came back and gave us the confidence to move on. You threw out a name a little bit earlier. You said uh, Reggie White, who I think everyone, you know, I think even casual football fans that aren't diehards, I mean, even younger generations who probably don't even know about those VHS tapes that you made reference <laughs> to still know that name. Kind of, we get what he did on the football field. Yeah. Take me into what really made him as special a guy and a player as, as really anyone that's ever played in the league. Yeah, uh, it, it's really it's really difficult to um, encompass everything that he was in a brief time. When we first got to Philadelphia maybe June or July in, in many camps, he invited every rookie to his house every single day, him and Sarah, for meals and just to hang out. I mean, just everybody. And I had a really special relationship with him because I right away knew, I mean, he's Reggie White, and everyone treated him like that, but he didn't want to be treated. He wanted to be one of the guys. Hmm. And so I always made it a point early on because we always expected Reggie to get a sack whenever he wanted to. And it was just there was nothing on the football field he couldn't do. But what I wanted to make sure is I wanted to make sure that Reggie understood that I and the team appreciated every time he did get a sack. So if you're ever watching those VHS films of Philadelphia Eagles early on (laughs) and he makes a sack – I would run from wherever I was on a football field and run and, like, jump on his head and slap him and just make sure that he was appreciated. And later on, we were playing. He was with the Panthers, and I was with the Raiders. And, we, had, I mean, we, we talked and hung out many times, but he really impressed on me how important that was to show the excitement that it's just not we expect you to do this, Reggie. And we all did, but I just really wanted to make sure that I showed him that I was excited, that he was having fun. And that was a big thing with Reggie is just making sure he had a good time. I'm glad you bring up the idea of fun. You mentioned Reggie White's name. How much fun is, is playing in the NFL? Oh, it's it like leading up to the games uh, and the, the, the conversations and inside jokes that we had. Uh, as teammates going against, you know, guys we knew we can kind of rattle or get under their skin. Uh, it was always a joke about, you know, Dallas Cowboys early was a terrible team. And so the guys up front would, like, just love just sacking Troy Aikman. I mean, there was games we'd sack him, like, ten times. Uh, we played Green Bay once, and they had Tony Mandrich, who was, like, the phenomenal offensive lineman uh, from Michigan State. We were playing him in, like, week one or two. We would get back to the huddle, and our defensive linemen would be arguing to try and line up over him because he was off the juice. So they were just destroying him. So it was like a big joke. Like I was like, I want to line up over him too. You know, it's like, dude, you're like 
five ten, you know, you're a buck eighty, you know, he's gonna destroy you. But it's just those moments you win the game, then afterwards the the ride back to the airport, the 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 flight home, everyone's celebrating, it's a great time and you get back to the stadium, you have those great fans in Philadelphia. During Tuesdays, which is our day off, uh Reggie would organize all the team to go down to South Philly and we'd have street ministries, so we would go to schools and, and neighborhoods and just walk down the street. All the kids would come out. Uh, we really started like the Big Brother uh, deal in Philadelphia wow. without any one. We had some couple kids who used to come to practice all the time. A kid named Pat Tan, who I became really close to, they would come to practice like, listen, you guys don't come to practice anymore without bringing your homework. Oh, well, come on. Oh, come on, Eric. I was like, Really? You guys can help out with the balls and shagging, but you guys got to bring your homework wow. in. Do your homework first while we're in meetings, and then you guys can go out and help the equipment managers collect the balls and, and all that stuff. So uh, years later, uh, one of them became a manager, and uh, Patrick uh, played football like in Arizona. So it was a situation where the community and the Eagles were really connected at the time. We really had a, a really great time in that situation. You bring up your time in Philadelphia. What's what's free agency like then? Because obviously you yeah. don't finish your career in Philadelphia. <laughs> wow. We were stuck, basically. Whatever team you were drafted by, 90% of us would finish with that team. and There, there really was no such thing as free agency, and it really affected our football team in a negative way. Uh, because as you know, you know Reggie was the was the first in that second wave. You know we have Kurt Flood, of course, but he was the first in that second wave of basically being recruited. And they flew Reggie all around, giving him jerseys, and 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 so he was the first guy to to really get recruited and left Philadelphia. And Philadelphia really didn't know how to combat that and didn't offer him what he was worth and he felt like I've done so much for this football team so much in this community and you're not gonna put up a fight for me you're just gonna assume that you know I love these guys but I'm not gonna look out for my family and so and they they really they took him for granted they thought that because of the situation we were in and the roots that he had put down he couldn't go somewhere else and then come back in the offseason. So that really affected us. Did you think it was going to change how you approached your, your career? Yeah, it did because Reggie left in, I believe, 92, 92 or 93. The next year after that, Clyde and Seth left. And so now you see the, I mean, just the falling away of that defense. And before that, really, Keith Jackson, who had made multiple Pro Bowls his first couple of years, and he wanted to resign, didn't resign him. He left. He went to uh, Miami. So they just didn't handle it. And so when it came my time, I was like, you got rid of Reggie. You got rid of Clyde and Seth. I'm not going to be the only guy here like you can kind of tie the wagon to without the rest of my guys. So, I, you know, I was pretty much resigned to saying I'm going to try and go somewhere where um, I can kind of start anew. So, yes, it, it, it affected me directly how they handled those situations before me, um, saying that you know, we're not trying to keep this team together to win a championship. We want to keep a face, what I thought, a face on the franchise. Did you, as you reflect back on your career, though, are you happy you didn't finish out in Philadelphia just to experience other cities 
like playing for the Saints, like the Raiders? Oh, that's wow. That's a. I had to leave because now if, if Andy Reid was there, that would have been a different story. Wow. Uh, Jeff Lurie was relatively young in the process. I mean, he was a new owner. He didn't have a football background, relying on other football people to make some decisions. And for me personally, I did not agree with how they went on those next, you know, four or five years until they got to Andy. So it was a good thing that I left um, when I did. But if Andy Reid was there, I think if Andy Reid would have been that next coach, I, I think it would have been best if I would have stayed. And um, the Saints situation, it was just – it was the Saints. Yeah. And I thought that they were making a turn to a different uh, different direction organizationally. They didn't. And so I was happy to leave and go to Oakland, which was my childhood team. And I loved John Gruden. It was his first year. And the sure. funny story about John is – I'm talking to him, and I don't realize he's the head coach. He looks as young as I do. So they fly you. They fly me out to uh, first when I was in New Orleans, and I got into a big uh, halftime of, like, game three against the 49ers. We were getting killed, and me and Coach Dicka get in a huge argument, fight, in the locker room week three. I mean, he's we're you? going. Me and my, Coach Mike, the Iron Mike, are in the locker room like arguing, like just profanity at each other and everything. You know, yeah, you me. curse. Oh my goodness, I different guy on the football field. I, so, apparently, yeah. I can't get over that. <laughs> yeah, dude, uh, we are going totally off week three. So I got to spend another uh, thirteen weeks in the locker room uh, with him. And since then, we've you know we've, sure. we've yeah we've shuck it out and we've worked together you know and everything, but. So I'm like, I'm out of here. There's no way I'm staying around here. So they fly me. They trade me to Minnesota. They trade me to the Titans. All these teams without me knowing, right? So I'm like, I'm not going. So I'm like, put up a stand. I'm like, I'm taking my stuff. I was in San Diego. And so uh, I was like, if you guys don't give me an opportunity to shop myself, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fly down there, take all my stuff and retire, right? So you guys are going to have no corner and nothing for them. So eventually, after all that, would you have done that? Yeah, yeah. You I'd would just walked away. I'd have been in there ten years. I'd been it'd been ten years. Okay, I, I was good. You know, I, I the experience I had those last couple years in New Orleans like soured me. It was it wasn't good? Wow. So I was like headed to the airport to fly down, get my stuff, and just bring it back home and call it a call it quits, right? And so they call me up and they're like, "So who do you want to get traded to?" And I was like, let me talk to my guy. I'll get like four or five teams, and I'll start talking with them. So I talked to four or five teams, the 49ers. I was talking to uh, Mr. Clark. He was a GM, had everything dialed in, everything uh, ready to go, was about to go to the press conference, about to fly to San Francisco to go to a press conference. The general manager of the Saints calls me up, says, hey, we can't do that. I'm like, you guys just told me. If I had my guy get these teams, and they yeah. give you enough to get you a, you have a player, a, a, a pick, or whatever. And they're like, dude, we cannot do that. He does not want to see you twice a year. And I was like, that's not what you guys told me. So they had Willie Shaw, who, like I said, was my demons of back coach at ASU, recruited me from San Diego. He had just went to the Raiders. He had him call me. He said, hey, listen, 
you need to come here to Oakland. And I was like, Coach Shaw, we beat you guys last year, and we're garbage, right? We came out to Oakland, beat you guys. And I was walking across the field, and I told Mr. Davis, I said, hey, why didn't you draft me in 1988? You drafted Terry McDaniel. And he's like, uh, you played like safety your last year, right? So I was like, yeah. I said, but why didn't you draft me, dude? I mean, I was a Raider fan. I was just kidding with him, right? Yeah. And just kind of walked away or whatever. So I said, all right, for Willie, I'll come out. I'll come out to Oakland for Willie. So I'm flying out. I'm in the facility. You didn't really have any intention on signing with him. No. It no, was I just kind did of a for, courtesy. It was just for Willie because yeah. he's my guy, you yeah. know? So come out, fly in, pick me up, take me to the facility. And it's uh, maybe the second year that they are they – were, that's the first year they're going to be in Oakland because they were playing in Oakland, but they were still having practices the year before in L.A., so it was a really weird situation. So I fly in, and I'm expecting to, you know, talk to Willie. So I'm talking to this, this blonde-haired dude, you know, with the Raider gear on. I, yeah, you know, I remember you in Philly, you know, EA. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we had some good times back there. And so I'm talking to him, whatever. And so uh, – And you have no idea who I he is. I have no idea who he is. You I have could just no be idea. some dude. I just some dude with guy. Raider gear. Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm in a facility talking yeah. to a dude with Raider stuff on, right? Not in a big office or anything. And so uh, he's like, all right, I'll meet you upstairs. I was like, all right, cool. So I go upstairs, me and my wife, I have Austin, my son, with me. And we go upstairs and uh, talking to Willie. He's like, hey, have you met uh, Coach Gruden? Great dude, young, you know, energetic, bright. Here's He gives me the defense, going to let me do my thing on the defense. And here's what we're thinking about drafting. Uh, we think about drafting this young kid out of Michigan, the Heisman Trophy winner. I'm like, oh, cool, you know, another guy. Here's what we have on the back end. I'm excited. But I'm like, this is the Raiders. I'm not. So we go into the big office. I'm like, what? He's like, and he said, I'm like, Groot? Groot? He's like, yeah. I was like, oh, my goodness. So I'm sitting here. Now I'm talking to him. He's like talking shop. He's like, hey, man, listen, here's what, here's what we got. We're going to change it around. And so I, I really loved the, 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 the feel I got there. Yeah. And so I left, talked to Lynn, which is my wife, and. We're like, yeah, I mean, it's a possibility, you know, but it's going to be the last possibility. Uh, and, you know, I just I just really got a good feel. My friend, Anthony Newman, who went on a recruiting trip with me to ASU, uh, had played with me in New Orleans for a couple years okay. and had gotten released that year. And I talked a lot to Willie about I love playing with Anthony Newman. Love playing with Anthony. Smart guy, good, strong safety, in the box. You don't get give away a lot of stuff. Just a really smart guy. Just in passing, just talk to him. I'm at home. I get a call from Anthony Newman. He's going to Oakland. E, what's up? I'm like, man, I'm just trying to make, you know, make this decision, find out what I want to do. He's like, what decision? I was like, you know, Oakland and other, other squads. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, guess where I am? I'm like, where? He's like, I'm in Oakland. I'm like, what you doing in Oakland? They just signed me. I hung up the phone, dude. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. I said, if they're willing, okay, to to do that, I mean, that's that's you know that that that's showing me that you are trying to take that next step and and become an organization that I remember them as when I was when I was younger. So, flew the family back up, signed, and uh, it was it was a outstanding experience being with. The Raiders, that organization, and, and still today, I mean, we have great friends there in the organization.
it that's got to be one of the coolest things knowing that someone wants you so badly yeah. to play yeah. on your team. You in the course of your career, you you've gone up against. I mean, that corner spot. You started off this podcast. You make reference to sort of the importance of that position, what it was like for you, the pride that you had playing there. There are some of the biggest name wide receivers in the history of the game that you yeah. went one-on-one with. I'm going to throw some names at you. Right, right? Right, you right. just tell me if there's a story, an idea, uh-huh. a memory, a moment, something that resonates with some of these guys. Okay, right. Michael Irvin. I, I went with I went against Michael the most of any because we were in the same division. Typical six foot three, six foot four, two hundred and thirty pounds, just physical player. And the thing I love most about Mike is his combative nature, and you knew you were going to be in for a test for him. So we had some things that were almost unstoppable. We call it the glance, like a skinny post. And he would run this thing, and you couldn't stop it because if you were big, you really couldn't get out your back pedal enough time to stop it. And Troy was so accurate. So I devised a scheme by going back to film work and finding out where they threw it, why they threw it, what down. And so I put it all in the computer, and I was able to basically stop it, right? So the first time, I jumped in front of it and knocked it down. And it was like, Mike was like, that's not supposed to happen, bro. What what, what are you doing? What are you doing? So after the game, I was like, yeah, you can't run that glance over me no more, right? (laughs) It's like, we're going to find a way. So the next game, we're playing him, and he usually lined really tight on the outside numbers when he ran the glance. So he he comes out of the huddle, and mentally, he's thinking, I'm running a glance. And so he sees me, and he steps out two two yards further than the numbers to kind of throw me off. And I was like, no, 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 you no. You're it. not throwing me out right. So big old checks and stuff, and they went to the other side. But just great competition with Mike. And uh, I just – I just, and still today, I mean, he's just a big bear, uh, loves grabbing you. And yeah. I'm like, dude, we're, we're – 15 years out. Don't grab me anymore. You did enough of that while we're playing. (laughs) (laughs) He talk a lot on the field? Mike did, except with me. Really? Yeah, didn't really talk. How did you know that? Like, how did you know that it was nonstop for everyone else? Yeah, You could see it. You could see it, and it was just a healthy respect for uh, what our team was about because we used to give it to them. Oh, man, we used to – we love playing the Cowboys until they got to the point where they were 92 and 93 Super Bowl sure. champs, right? And how about those Cowboys and all that stuff? But, but yeah, it, it was just a great, healthy respect. Isaac Bruce. Uh, the preacher. Um, and, again, just when he got to the Rams, I was with New Orleans. And so, again, I would have to travel a lot. So I would see him a lot. Outstanding route runner, a great competitor, and, again – there's nothing you could do to rattle him. He was a a similar version to Jerry Rice. Not as big, not as dominant, of course, but, I mean, he would just pray for He's you. Still pretty good. Oh, yeah, he'd pray for you, though. <laughs> yeah. He'd pray for you, though. I, sorry, E, got this out route on you, man. Maybe you'll get me next time. And, I mean, he was just so nice. But it was genuine. Oh, oh yeah, genuine. Yeah. Genuine, yeah. you know, just... But I, I love – he doesn't get enough respect for starting that greatest show on turf. Oh, yeah. And he was always a, a – a walking reception. You threw out Jerry Rice's name. Um, I yeah. mean, you gotta. It, I just, it just. Uh, he forced me and everybody else who covered him to spend so much time, and he made me better. And I told him that. I said, man, you. When you look on the schedule at the beginning of the season, and you see San Francisco, it makes you train different. It makes you 
you start to, hey, what is he doing in the offseason? How many hills did he run? 18? I got to run 20. Okay. Wow. Is he in the sand? Oh, I got to go I got to go to the sand every day. So he forced me to train harder, uh, study harder, lift, run. And I mean, so he had a lot to do with, you know, elevating that off-season workout regimen because he was so great. Chris Carter is another name oh, that I think you goodness. could throw out there. I've seen all phases of Chris Carter. I've seen the young guy came in reckless, um, didn't work hard, uh, relied on all of his athleticism when he was in Philly, um, being released, buddy finding him a home in Minnesota, and him turning his life around. And that dude, you're talking about talking, there's no one who out talk Chris Carter. Chris, we were in a game, in the middle of a game, and he's in the slot, and he's talking, EA, I know you guys don't have this dude on me. I know, And it was one of our players. And I was like, he was like, hey, I know. In film, you're the worst guy in the backfield. And, and as Warren Moon is, like, checking, he is talking to this player. And this, the, after the series, He's like, dude, the the player came to me and said, am I that bad? I was like, man, don't listen to Chris Carter. Do not listen to Chris. He's trying to get in your head. But he was such a smart player, knew all the the receiving routes, where the holes were. But he was one of the smack-talkingest guys ever on the football field. I remember he caught a ball. He catches an out route, like, with one hand. And the referee was like, no good. He's like, dude, I do this. Do you know who I am? I do that. We do this. This is Sunday football, ref. And so he's kind of like telling the ref, like, dude, you need to like re up your expectations of what a catch is because I'm Chris Carter, basically. Crazy stuff. You know, you say Chris Carter's name as a guy that talked a lot. I always thought Keyshawn was oh, one of the bigger no, talkers. No, I, no? I, I think that happened after Key was out of the league, basically. Okay. And with, you know, the give me the ball and his yeah. blow up with John Gruden on the sideline. That wasn't about performance. I mean, um, the funny story is, so we're breaking down film early in the week on the Jets. And so, again, you know, I had the the great responsibility of traveling, you know, with the best receiver, either, you know, first down or particularly third down. If the percentages of a receiver were really high on third down, on third down, I would go in the slot or I would go wherever that guy was. And funny story, when we're playing the Jets, I was never on Keyshawn. I was always on Wayne Sherbet, the now, little dude from Hofstra. Hofstra. <laughs> Here's the other thing. So you, I don't know if you realize this about me. So I, I grew up in the Northeast, New York, uh-huh. New Jersey. So like Wayne Sherbet, when he was out there, like he was, he hey, was a dude. He was but balling like, out, but not Keyshawn. Not, I mean, like that number was, one draft pick yeah, in the whole like, league. That's not supposed to happen. When, hey, the film bear, the the stats say, EA on third down, you, you go Wayne, Wayne. Sherbet. <laughs> Did you ever after? say that to Keyshawn? I, I don't remember, but I know, like, my buddies and stuff were, like, as we were going from, you know, left to right, they're like, E, you're on Wayne, you know? So they were kind of talking loud trying Letting to get Keyshawn. Yeah, know. trying to let him know. So I, I think one of the, the crazy things about your career is if you look at the statistics, they say one thing, and they say that you were a great player. You talk to your contemporaries, the guys on the other side on offense, and, and Lord knows I've talked to a bunch of them just being lucky and fortunate enough to, to work in this business. I've had people say this, and Kurt, I started the show making reference to Curtis Conway. Yeah. I don't know how much of a sore subject this is for you, but I'm going to say it 
because maybe <laughs> you you don't feel because you're a humble guy and I don't whatever. Why the hell aren't you in the Hall of Fame? Like, how is that possible? Based yeah. on like, why do you think that is? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. Uh, numbers wise, you know, if you're a corner, if we want to just talk about numbers, and people are in a room talking about numbers, you want to talk about numbers of starts. What two fourteen out of possible two seventeen? Yeah, games so, played. Yeah, so. In anybody else in the league, as far as who's in the Hall of Fame, my numbers are as good or better than those guys. Yes. Six Pro Bowls. Six Pro Bowls, as yeah. good as from the last, you know, four or five corners who have went into the Pro Bowl. Just counting corners, not safeties. Because, so, Rod is in the Pro Bowl. Sure. He went from corner to safety. Look at his numbers at interceptions after he transitioned to safety probably 50 or something, or maybe not 50, probably 20 to 30. Charles, who will be in the Hall of Fame, went from corner to safety. Safety is a particular free, is an easier position to play. Uh, my numbers, 54 interceptions in 14 years, are equal to Daryl Green, who played 20 years. He played 20 years. He has 54 interceptions. To I get played to 14. Yours. I have had 54. It's a lot of games. Extra. I have nine touchdowns. Anyone I talk to who I played against or my contemporaries, they don't know either. I don't have any idea. And it's not a sore subject mm-hmm. because, like I tell people, and get this, I don't need someone to put a stamp on what I did. I know I'm one of the best that ever played in my time. I know that. There's just no doubt about that. But what irks me and what's disappointing is I don't get an opportunity to give a shout-out to those people who helped me get there there. in front of the people that they need to be brought in front of. You know what I'm saying? I I need to give those guys who helped me from – Valencia Park, Pop Warner, Point Loma High School, Arizona State, all those years in the pros. Those folks need to be recognized in front of all those folks who wear gold jackets because they're Hall of Famers too. So when you get to the Hall of Fame, it's just not you. It's never just you. Yeah. I don't care who you are. It's never just you. So those guys who are wearing gold jackets, they, they got to bring all the other people around them to Canton, either physically or verbally, and I would love to be able to give a shout out to this guy, that guy, you know, this family, mom, dad. You know, I I want those people to be there too. So that's that's what's disappointing about not not getting there. Be a special moment. Yeah, and I think for those people, because I think oh, in yeah. a lot of ways they understand the impact that they had on you. Right. You just it'd be kind of cool to say to, it. to say it and say it. In that's front of what people. it's about. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it's about. You know, sometimes in other sports, it helps when you're doing the TV thing. You spent years at ESPN. Um, I've said this to you, and I've told people in, in our building at Pac-12 Network. I, when there was a spot that was open, I I, I remember calling you. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. texting you. I said, "Yeah, will you come out to the stay on the West Coast? You don't have to worry about the snow in Connecticut anymore." Yeah. So I'm thrilled that you're you're with us. Um, 
Did you ever think you were going to do TV, though? Because, I mean, you have had a long – you've now had a longer career. If I'm yes. right. It's got to be close, doing yeah. TV than football. Yeah, yeah. Right around I that have. cusp. I have. And, yeah, when I was at Arizona State, like I said, I didn't know I was going to be able to play. So my big thing was I wanted to be able to talk about the game that I love. Yeah. So my my goal – was to work for ESPN. Wow. So you get goal at 12 to play in the league. (laughs) Check that off the list. You get a goal to work at ESPN. Walter Walter Cronkite School of of Journalism at ASU. One of the best ones in the the country. And it's obviously I've been been lucky enough to go down there and speak to some of their students and be on campus. It's a cool cool deal that they have down there. So you're checking off the boxes. Yeah, I'm checking off some boxes. So what's next then? Oh, uh, I want to, I want to actually, and they everyone thinks I'm crazy. I want to go in one of those cages. You go in a cage, like UFC. N- no, heck no, oh, dude. Okay. I, just, I want to go in a cage in the Pacific. No. Yes. No. And see great white sharks. You're crazy. That's dude. that's what I want to do. You're crazy. That's awesome. No, I did a. Uh, that's not awesome. Uh, I'm gonna tell you right now. I had a bachelor party for one of my dear friends from kindergarten. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm his best man. He wants to do this fishing trip for his bachelor party. We go out, and by fishing trip, I said, yeah, you know, we'll throw some lines in. I want to see land. Now I'm a swimmer. I'm cool, right, right. but I want to see the land because I realize that there's a difference between a pool and an ocean. Yeah, yeah. We end up going. I don't know, 30, 40 miles off the coast. Yeah. We're going sharking. And I go, we're going sharking? I said, guys, <laughs> A, have you seen Jaws? <laughs> B, sharking. You want sharks to come to us. Sure enough, they did it. I'm freaking out. Uh, I won't even go down to the bottom. I'm on the uh, top. Because I'm like, dude, the boat's rocking. I said, you're coming a couple inches off of the, right. off of the deal, and that could be you know, make or break at that point. Um, yeah. The shark's going to be able to jump into the boat. I uh, want to know part of that. Yeah. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming uh, on the dude, show. Anytime. I would, we're going to do this again yeah because yeah. i've been getting text messages that we have to go and record something right now oh, that, oh that's right we actually we have another like job a real an, job, an actual right? job deal. uh eric allen absolutely fantastic I, I the insight the stories i know you got more stories i have a ton more questions i want to ask you sure. so we're going to do this again so thank you again for coming on with us yeah anytime mike you're the best my man and if uh, you're enjoying this show I, I can't thank you guys enough for spreading it on social media you can follow me on twitter at mike underscore yam the facebook page is mike yam ea you're not a big social media guy but you are on twitter that's right What's the handle for you eric allen at 619 I love it. Yes. Eric, at Eric Allen 619. You can follow EA on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening and downloading. Make sure you rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. And if you like it, just share it with some of your friends. Thanks again. Per. Awesome.